today I'm joined with Bruce Norris. He is an investor, real estate educator with over 35 years of experience, um, a true real estate timing expert, and he's been um, kind of a personal real estate mentor of mine for many, many years, um, going back probably about 15 years or so. And I'm delighted and excited to have Bruce on the show. Welcome, Bruce. Dave, thanks for having me. I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. Um, so today I wanted to focus on um, kind of understanding the market because I feel there's so much noise going on with real estate and you have a lot of sensational people and and um, videos and articles talking about a looming crash, but then we're seeing the market just being very resilient after COVID. And so I wanted to kind of give people a, a, a bigger overview on what's happening, what to expect in the market. But before we dive into that, because that's going to probably take a while, I wanted to share, um, have you share kind of a bit about your real estate background, um, what you've seen over the years, and kind of um, yeah, how you view how you um, are able to time the markets. And for those people who don't don't know Bruce, Bruce is um, in California in especially the real estate investment clubs. He is one of the most sought out after speakers over the past twenty years. He's been able to in nineteen ninety seven he came up with this report saying California. Uh, real estate is going to double in the next eight years. But this was after many years of a lull, which is an amazing thing to call. And then in 2005, 2006, he came out with the report that said um, it was called the California crash. He, he basically forecasted the California downturn um, in 2009, 2010, um, that area. And then um, in 2009 um, or 10, I remember going to a few of your seminars and you were saying this is the lifetime of an op uh, opportunity oh. of a lifetime. And and you were just encouraging people to double down and to get as much as they could during that time. And over the years, I've been just fascinated by how you're able to do things that seem contrarian. When, when the mood is just super Absolutely pessimistic, right. you've been like, <laughs> this is the opportunity of a lifetime. When everyone is saying bubble, bubble, or every, when everyone's saying this is going to the moon forever, you're like, wait a minute, it's going to crash 50% or more you know, in a few years. But the... I, I haven't been able to see someone over the past 25 years or so been able to call the ups and the downs on both sides, you know, yes. um, multiple times over the years. Um, I mean, everything hasn't been exactly perfect to the point where you don't have a crystal ball. You don't know no. what's going to happen exactly in the next few years. But um, mm. to be able to to do that and to use your data and statistics, it's just been mind-boggling so yeah can you can you kind of give people kind of a glimpse into how you do what you do sure um i started investing in 1980 so i started flipping properties and everything was pretty normal you know real estate in california just went up and that was what it was supposed to do and i thought that's what it always did and 89 uh after it been you know i had quite a bit of success i built six custom homes got done with them june of 1990 and they didn't sell I ran a full page ad in the Palm Springs paper and I uh, got no response and uh, basically sold those over the course of the next two and two and a half years. I had investors in the properties uh, that had construction loans. I made all those construction loan payments and, uh, and out of pocket paid for any losses that we took. And the last closing was about, uh, we closed and we, I wrote a $62,000 check to, to have the investor have his return. So that's what I guess that's called personal short sale, you know, and you kind of remember stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So 
what was interesting too was as a buyer who I was buying from radically changed. It went from buying from people for 10 years to buying REOs and short sales, that type of thing. I had something happen in 95 that made me think, okay, I've been doing this for 15 years and I have no idea why prices go up and down. And my son graduated from high school. I bought him a Honda Civic for 15.7 and the next day bought a three bedroom house in Riverside for 13.3. Wow. And that, and that event, and the reason it was really stark to me was it was on a VA list. So it, it was up for sale for 15 grand and every VA that had an occupant idea, you know, I'm going to live in it, got their first shot, not one bid. Wow. Then it went to investors all over America that have this list. I'm the only bidder for the maximum discount. Now that'll make you think twice. Mm-hmm. I'm the only person in America that thinks it's a good idea to buy a house for 13.3 that rents for $500. And that one event coming off of 1989 and 90, I thought real estate would never go up to the bottom of now 1995, 96, where real estate clubs were just like, oh, when will this ever end? And so I thought I'd get to the bottom of it. And basically I wanted, first of all, I figured somebody else had, that was true. So I went to the library and I pulled up uh, any article for 25 years written about real estate price movement. So went to microfilm, read every newspaper article, magazine article for anyone that said in advance, this is, this is what's going to happen. And that was not common at all. It was always one year away, or this is what did happen. So I thought, you know what, I wonder basically if it's possible to appraise the state of California in advance. And that was what I had in mind. And so for the next 18 months, all I did was collect data on every topic I could think of that impacted price movement without drawing any conclusions, by the way. And that is so important when you're chasing the truth is don't go into it with a preconceived end result, because I see a lot of report. That's my Matter of fact, that's my number one question. When somebody tells me they've written something, I ask them, why did they write it? And I'm just curious because I, what I want to do is know where to put my own money, the safest place. That's my goal. So for 18 months, all I did was collect data. And it's so easy now. You just click, click on something and put a PDF behind it. You have uh, every report in the world about something. But back then, I actually had to earn the right. I went to libraries all over California and I had pen pen and paper in hand. And I literally wrote down, like if I found affordability, I would write down from 1975 to whenever the, you know, where I was 1996, every number for every city and make a chart of it. Now I didn't know if it mattered or not, but I, it's what I had to do. Interest rates, um, unemployment, foreclosure numbers, on and on category after category. Now, so I have all this stuff and I don't know what, what's meaningful. And I went to Maui on a vacation and I started overlaying the charts because what I was trying to find was what I call an initial event. If this happens, it dominoes into other things. And I had two boom cycles and two bus cycles. And so I literally didn't know how to put them on a computer. So I laid them on the ground and I had yardsticks. And so I blocked off like one section of a boom time. And I played with the charts to see if there's a sequence and it had to replicate or didn't count. In other words, it had to be true the next time too. Anything that was like a false lead, like consumer sentiment, that sounds like, oh gosh, that has to be true. Nope. So, you know, you just toss out stuff that wasn't true. 
And basically, uh, by the end of 1996, in December, I had figured out what I thought was a, a formula for saying prices were going to go up and they were not going up. So that's, that's what's significant too, is that you're writing this, not when the mood is wonderful. You know, it's, it's really easy to write something like right now, Cal, you know, California real estate's doing really well. You know, well, thanks for the report. <laughs> um, it's important that it precedes it because then there's opportunity when the mood is down, then if you're excited about something, then you can pick and choose and have, uh, and have a good time because you don't have a lot of competition. So we wrote the California comeback in 97, why prices will double in the next eight years. And when I would go to talk to clubs at that time, you know, it was really well received because people were in really bad moods about real estate, but did they, did they believe it? Nah, I don't think so. <laughs> because I mean, first of all, I have no background as a, I have no a college education. I just am an investor that has street smarts. And, but I was, you know, that's the thing about putting in writing too, Dave, when you're, you're stuck with it. I mean, there it is, mm -hmm. you know, big old cover that says prices are going to double in eight years. And then when they did, and then they overdid it. So now I'm looking at things. Now, one of the, one of the stopping points for California, that initial domino for me is affordability reaching 17%. Now I didn't dream that one up. I, that was from looking at charts. So in 1980, 17%, 89, 17%, first quarter of 2005, 17%. What happens after 17% is hit is ugly inside of two years. That's all it is to me is a warning label. It says that when you're in a legitimate lending market, that there's a lot of excitement at 17% affordability. That's how you get there. It drives prices up versus wages. But if it's a legitimate lending environment, people want them and they get it told, they get told no. So it stops by just natural causes. Well, what happened in 2005, we flew right past 17 to 11. So I thought, okay, is my thesis incorrect? And so probably in 07, because it had gone down to about 11%, I interviewed a lender in front of an audience of hundreds of people. And I basically just got to ask one question because it was all I needed to hear. I asked her, stated income loans, where does the stated income number come from? And she said, oh, we just make it up. And I kind of let that set in for a minute. And I realized, okay, you just basically said you commit fraud on every loan application. And that's why we flew past 17%. Uh-oh. <laughs> We're going to give that back. And that was, now that was before I understood anything of the Wall Street uh, stuff. You know, that was, that was another, once I understood what they did, uh, you know, to finance all this and sell it and all that, then I realized, wow. So in, in 06, in the beginning of the year, we wrote California Crash. And once I understood some of the real estate, or sorry, the Wall Street tricks, and the leverage that was existing, I, I changed, I not changed, but I added another title. It was called category five with the, with the tornado uh, and, or a hurricane in the front. So, and it is, it is important that you be able to look at the facts and come up with a positive and a negative scenario, because I want to know that I want to know how to get in and I want to know how to get out. And by the way, getting out is much more important than getting in on a bottom, getting in, 
at a top or close to a top is very important timing wise because once it starts to go down, you're in a different market because here's what happens to investors. Just for fun, let's say when we were being able to speak in front of an audience recently, I would, I would ask an audience, you know, or tell them, first of all, you have to be very careful in markets that you get spoiled. In other words, everything is selling. I don't care if it's on lease land, it's a mobile home, it's on a dirt road, doesn't matter. You're going to have a buyer for it. But let me ask the audience a question, really simple one, and not like it's a big difference, but how many of you, you know, 200 people in the audience would say, how many people prefer a two-story house? So you get 15 out of 200. I said, let's add a pool in the backyard. Now you're down to six. Think about that. I said, 3% of your audience said, I love your product. In a down market, you're going to have a big hard time. Now that's all you did. You didn't do anything really wrong. Put that on a main street. Put it on a dirt road. The things you're getting away with in a, in a good market, you don't get away with in a down market. You have to know how to not get stuck with the wrong inventory. And so that's, you know, that's just part of the journey it's been. So it's, it's a passion. You know, this is the thing. I read this stuff to try to figure out what's next. And then there's always something to learn, Dave. You know, that's the thing. Yeah. When you sit here and go, okay, well, I think I've, I think I've got it. Um, there's a line in Godfather 3 where Al Pacino says, every time I think I'm, I'm out, they drag me back in. And literally, that's what 2020 has felt like. Because I'm going to mention just California because I'm most familiar with that. In 2019, we had the best set of stats ever since I've been paying attention to stats. Lowest unemployment rate, no comp competition from foreclosures, great affordability historically, and we have a price movement of like 2 or 3%. And historically, 15 would be no problem. We didn't go up with the best set of charts I've ever seen. And then we have 2020. So 2019, didn't that feel like a kind of a certain market? You kind of felt like, okay, things are good. And they're probably going to be good. So now you go to 2020 and you have the coronavirus that lends all kinds of uncertainty to it. Lots of people have their businesses closed. And now you go up 17.5%. So... Someone like me who has a history of this stuff goes, okay, that is an anomaly. What happened? What happened in 2020 that didn't happen in 2019? Because the stats were safer in 2019. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what it's interesting about 2020. Maybe we'll, we'll, we can talk about that now or we can talk about it later. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but, I'd love to talk about it because, um, yeah, I want to – let's talk about actually – the market right now i think this is this is fascinating for a lot of people and then we'll circle back to some of the the crash in 2008 um that was just i think some of the most crazy times um but um so i i watched um, some of your other recent interviews and you're saying from april 2019 to april 2020 housing prices were basically stagnant um and yeah. I, I guess this was california six hundred and five thousand dollars roughly yeah didn't move at all, basically. And then from April 2020 to December 2020, so just, you know, in, um, what, seven months or eight months, housing prices went up. I'm assuming this is California again, from 606 to $712,000. So 17.5% increase in less than a year. 
Um, so what are you thinking during this time? I mean, because a lot of people are thinking, you know, it's going to crash the real estate market, but then you see this, you know, opposite effect. How are you processing all this? Well, it's really important to have a history of the knowledge of it. So crashing, when you crash in price, again, it, it really helps to understand and look at all the stuff with a mind that says, okay, I don't have a, I don't have a preference to outcome. I just want to know what impacts price. So let me give you a couple of statistics and then you tell me what you think. When 1980, 81, 82, interest rates are basically 15% for real estate. That's the mortgage rate. Your unemployment is 10%. But I just tell you those two facts, how do prices do? Well, I've listened to you. I followed you enough where I know it doesn't matter. So if your audience absorbs that and you say, mm -hmm. okay, well, if you tell me that's coming, I'm headed for Dodge. Well, mm -hmm. interesting. It depends. So what happened in, in the 80s, you had, a, you had foreclosures go up, but they only became 24% of the market. So trustee sales, which is the final process of a foreclosure process in California to sales was 24%. And I think what that means in the practical sense is that if you're an appraiser and then you're in 1982 and you've got a comp that's 80,000 and you've got the, the retail comps at 130, you can throw out the 80 because it's only one out of four and it's, there's a reason for it. It's a foreclosure, mm -hmm. not, a, not really a comp. Go to 1990 to 96, that number changes to almost 40% of the market. Now the appraiser is going out and seeing 10 houses and four of them are discounted. It, it impacts what he can do. In 2009, they were 80% of the comps. They were the market. So as a, as a flipper, I bought houses that were worth, uh, you know, two years before 365, bought it for 65 grand three years later, put 20 grand in it to fix it. Had it up for sale for 125 grand, and the appraisal came in at 95. Well, why was that? Well, it's because all the comps were the 65 grand comp, and the appraiser had no choice because the the way the market was treating appraisers was you're the bad guy, and if you come in at 125 on that house, we're going to have a review appraisal come in, and if it's 95, you'll never get another appraisal job. Hmm. Now, if you know all that, then you just said. Are they ever going to build another house in California? Well, the answer is yes. So you ought to buy a few of those because that you're not going to do that at 65 grand. Uh -huh, sure. Yeah, definitely. And so, I mean, okay, to, now, now let me continue that. Yeah, thought. Go for it. So I did that. I did all that. I said all that to say this, you have to be concerned about foreclosures getting out of control to have price damage. That's why I said all that. So what are the odds of that? You have a lot of people that aren't there making their payments. Do you think the mood is so let's, for, let's foreclose on those people? I don't. I don't see that at all. And our lenders actually got wiped out when they were aggressive in 2009. When you were selling a house for 65 grand that you had lent 365, I think you probably have a pretty good memory for that. So you'll probably go, uh, why don't we just tack it at the end? You know? And so, and foreclosures that get to the back to the lender are damaging to the market. Foreclosures that are bought at trustee sales by a cash buyer are not. That's a completely different game. So right now, California specifically has passed a law that says, if you're the winning bidder at a trustee sale, the California state of California can come over and take it from you. They're just gonna keep it mm. as a rental. 
So how you're going to get an overwhelming amount of have-to-sell properties in the California market, I just don't see it. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, and a few other things I think you mentioned too was the super low interest rates are allowing people to just refi, stay in their own houses. Yeah. So you have people, and then with the appreciation going up, you have lots of people with lots of equity in their houses. So that's yeah. a force going against kind of, you know, maybe a lot of foreclosures coming on the market too. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I mean, this has probably been the safest t- ten-year time period of getting loans, right? Everybody's been on good behavior as lenders; they have they had no choice. So your borrower had to actually have a job and a credit score and a down payment, and then prices exploded. And the things that we didn't we did in '04 and '05 was refi all our equity out every time we had a chance and go play with it. You know, buy a second home, buy a motor home, whatever. This crowd has not done that. By and large, largest equity position ever biggest percentage of fixed rate loans ever, lowest interest rates ever. Well, I don't see how you're going to create a massive amount of foreclosures on that. I just, I don't. So what was interesting about 2020, because I really had to think about this, how do you go up 17 and percent with all this uncertainty? Mm-hmm. And there's always been a statement. So I've, I've heard realtors talk about, well, the reason the volume of sales are down. So 400,000 sales basically for the last 10 years. Well, why is it, why is it low? Their, their reasoning was, well, we don't have enough inventory. I can tell you from looking at charts, I know that's absolutely not true. It's not true. You get the most uh, volume of sales. And usually California has a run about three or four years of extraordinary sales. So if you take a look at 76 to 80, 85 to 89, boom, 2002 to 2006, straight line up on what? on lower and lower inventory. You don't need a lot of inventory when there's people that have to have it. Well, that's just what happened. So what, what oddly enough, when you had the coronavirus occur, 45% of the listings disappeared from the listings. They just got pulled in. So that crowd said, okay, I'm concerned. No one is touring my house. It's not for sale. I'm staying here. And then they have this magic thing of, that starts with a two, a 2% mortgage rate. So they just refi it and maybe they just say, the heck with it, we're staying. Okay, you pulled 45% of the inventory off. Well, if your thesis is correct about inventory levels really affecting sales, then how did you sell over 120% more inventory in, in 2020? Uh, it's because you had the second group that had to have one. And that had to have one had the same urgency as I got to stay at home crowd. And that's a, that's an anomaly. So you literally had people that said, I have to get out of this like stacked environment that I'm in. I'm in a, I I'm renting an apartment and interest rates are low. I'm going to go live in Riverside where I have a half acre, whatever the reasoning was two urgent crowds (laughs) did the opposite things. Mm -hmm. One pulled the inventory off and the other said, I have to have what's there. And Mm -hmm. Wow, what an interesting year. Not, I don't think I, I could have predicted that. No way. Yeah, crazy. I mean, if I could um, kind of uh, rephrase it, if you can kind of correct me if I'm wrong here. So this past year, what you're saying is first, coronavirus hits, people pull inventory. So you've got this kind of this period where inventory has been pulled 
And then people then just hunker down. Maybe they were thinking of selling, but then they say, oh, I don't want to sell anymore because where am I going to go? I'll just stay in my house, well, right? Well, it's not just that. They're, mm. they're afraid for people touring their house. That's Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, so they just said, no, we'll, we'll stay healthy and heck with it. Exactly. And then and the second thing is you have kind of this urban uh, uh, um exodus out of urban areas right people especially families living in condos and apartments they're like hey i gotta get out of here i'm working at home right. all day long so they're all going to let's say places with you know a hey, single family house is now the dream you know no longer is it a condo or apartment in in san francisco <laughs> anymore that's right <laughs> and so that's you have right. this, this increased demand of that and then you have the the whole low interest rates like getting under 3%, it's just mind-boggling how low, you know, things are going. Um, and so you have the combination of all this stuff happening. Do you consider also the Fed printing money, increasing money supply with some type of asset inflation, meaning you have extra trillions of dollars of money going around the system. This money needs to go somewhere. Real estate stocks, they're safe havens, kind of as inflation protected assets. So do you see any of that have an impact on the general kind of real estate market and real estate prices too? Yeah. I, you know, what the Fed did was sort of give everybody assurance that like the corporate debt, that was like a big, big thing talking about, oh boy, that's going to crash. That's going to be the subprime the next subprime event. Well, then you had the Fed come in and buy it. And I think all of a sudden you go, hmm. They basically said, you, you, you're in a riskless environment. Let her rip. And now what's interesting about that, this year, you know, we are going to produce, um, we're going to do a report in quarters because there's a lot of things to think about that have to kind of unravel to me. So it's not going to be, I'm going to do the first chunk of it um, on February 20th, but then every three months, we're going to do another segment. And one of the things I really got to get to the bottom of, are we going to have inflation? Because if, if I had to answer that question today, I would say, I don't think so. But there's a lot of smarter heads than I am that think so. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to figure out how they land there. Just because you throw money into a system doesn't increase the velocity. So what you said is true about the Fed, but what's happened to the velocity of money? It's gone down. Mm -hmm. And I think you need velocity of money to have inflation. Mm -hmm. um, you're probably much more familiar with uh, maybe a, a, the advances in robotics or things like that, but those are deflationary events. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And so those are going to be also... Uh, entering into the picture more and more where people that know how to do something manually will just get replaced. So that's, I have to get to the bottom of that myself, yeah. because again, as an investor, uh, I would like to know that outcome. Now I can tell you this, that one of the reports we did, and I don't remember, but I really tackled inflation and real estate because I wanted to understand how real estate did during inflation. Cause if I ask you that about stocks, how do stocks do, how do stocks do during the inflationary, like 75 to 80? Was that a good time or a bad time? Actually, stocks and real estate did pretty well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, real estate they, did very well. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but typically, um, what, I, what I found out about real estate is that you own a basket of commodities. That's what a house is. So you own concrete and you own wood, and inflation takes those off, uh, takes those prices up. Well, if you have an existing one, 
and you have a new builder who's building and that we're going through this right now. So we build houses in Florida. Well, it takes about three months to get a window and wood has gone up 50% and appliances are hard to get. And so those prices are inflating. Well, inadvertently, they're making each of my rentals more valuable when that happens because, and we've done this study in California, but I'm sure that there's a ratio of existing homes and new homes. And when this moves up, this typically the used home actually accelerates more. That's typically what happens and actually crosses in California, it crosses it at the peak of the market. So in 1980, existing homes were more expensive than new, 89 more expensive than new. So that's, uh, I have to say, I don't know that statistics nationally, but I do know they're a basket of commodities. That's what you own when you have a rental house. Interesting. Um, so, I mean, with housing, um, with kind of, let's say, velocity, velocity of housing changing hands, let's say, you know, going down in recent years, um, do you think that that will reverse at some point? Because, I mean, yes. okay, and then what would be the scenario for that to happen? Like, how would velocity well, of housing go up again? Well, think about what occurred in 2008. So you have this crash Mm -hmm. and you have everybody pointing fingers. Okay. It's the appraiser. It's the lender. Let's do all kinds of programs. If you, if you lost your home to foreclosure, by the way, did it take, did it take 90 days to foreclose on your house or three years, three years? Yeah. Yeah. So when it got foreclosed on you, you had three, three years plus seven years, you were out of the home buying business for 10 years. Well, you probably want one now. You actually can get a, a yes answer from a lender. And by the way, that's uh, in large part responsible for the uh, the apartment boom. You had a lot of people go from owning to renting and had no choice. And so now that's reversing. So it's, it's always interesting, you know, when you speak and every once in a while, you just have a kind of a surprise size crowd. So something like 200 more people than you normally get. And they were, this one seminar was in uh, LA, uh, LA Convention Center, room that held 400 people, had people lined all the way on all of the walls standing. I was just like, holy cow. So I, I asked, I said, well, I said this, I said, you guys are either really excited or really scared. And there was like laugh. And then somebody stood up and said, we want to know if apartments are in bubble price territory. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm not really an apartment guy, but I can ask you one question and you'll tell me, would you currently buy your own apartment building for today's price? And there was like rolling laughter. And I said, you've answered your own question. (laughs) (laughs) So do I think that single families um, are going to have their comeback in volume? Yes. And I think part of it is demographics. You know, I got married at 17. I was a grandfather uh, at 35. So now your 35-year-old may not even be married. So I was a little ahead of the curve. But they're going to, as soon as they get married, then all of a sudden, doesn't that click in that we're going we're gonna to do the other things that we, you know, that other people did? Probably. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, I think you're going to sell. I think you're going to have more homes. Now, the one thing that I try to pay attention to is, um, not just demographics, but also migration. So I, I pay attention to where people are going and what are the ramifications of who is showing up. And so 
that's why I no longer uh, reside in California and I live in Florida. And that's one of the main reasons. Can you explain kind of your decision to move to Florida? Yeah. Um, you know, there were some things that, that happened where I started feeling uncomfortable with me understanding the rules of engagement. That's, that's one. Um, there were, as you speak, you go around and you speak to clubs, you know, you just hear different laws passed in little different areas. You go, what? Um, Oakland passed a law voted on by the public that if you had a vacant lot and you were not using it, you get fined $6,000 a year on top of your property tax. Well, I thought, well, why in the world would that be? Um, but, you know, when you bought your lot, you didn't know that was coming. What if you had 10 lots? Well, as somebody that has vacant lots, that, that struck me as uh, kind of painful. Because sometimes you buy lots in advance of knowing, okay, they'll be good someday. I'll just wait. Well, now it's going to cost you, if you had 10 of those lots, 60 grand a year to wait till it's good. Well, what would be the reaction would be, maybe you could just have my lot. <laughs> well, see, then it dawned on me, oh my God, is that actually the plan? Do you want my land? So you can use it for what you want. That, that bothered me. So that's those little things that are happening. We had an election where, where there was uh, something um, on the ballot about rent control and it was voted against and a year later we had rent control and I didn't know that could happen and so in a seminar we had a panel of legislators come in and I wanted to get to the bottom of how things were approved what has to be voted on by the people what can be trumped by the legislator and then over that what can be trumped by a governor and it turns out when you have an emergency it's almost a free-for-all. You can enact whatever it is that you want without the approval of the people. That bothered me. So now I was already out of California with a fair amount of my real estate already in Florida because of another thing, and that's migration. California right now gains population only by babies being born over people dying, hmm. period. It loses migration of adults constantly and in growing numbers and will for the foreseeable future. Those are buyers and rental renters of real estate. Florida has about 85 to 90% of its growth by migrating adults. So not babies being born over people dying because they have older population. Those are on par, but in Florida, all of the gain is by migrating adults. Well, they have to rent something or buy something in real estate. That's a very impactful thing over a long period of time. Another statistic that's important of who lives here is the elderly population is the largest percentage of anywhere. Well, that sets off another chain of events. When you're 65, you have two medical people in your life. When you're 85, you have seven. So think about that. That means that over the course of the next 20 years, if that statement's true, 350% more migrating physicians, nurses will show up to Florida to take care of the 85-year-olds in the next 20 years. That's the safest business plan I know. I'm 68. I bet next year I'll be 69. And if I'm 85, I'll probably need a team of people. <laughs> and that, that to me is a safe business model. When I, when I moved my, a lot of my real estate holdings a few years ago to Florida, I thought the senior would be my renter. Um, just by, just by luck, honestly, the villages 
is the fastest growing tract, if you will, um, in America. So it's number one. That's where I have my rentals, close to the villages. And where I live, Lakewood Ranch, is the number two facet developing area in America. So I didn't look at that and say, oh, I'm going to go there. It just so happened that's what happened. But when I bought close to the villages, not in the villages, but close, I thought, who will be my renter will be a senior that doesn't want to live in the villages, which is a kind of graded, confined area where you have a golf cart and you go to lunch and you go golfing. And you didn't want that. I thought that would be my renter. Nope. Almost 100% of my renters are nurses or doctors. Mm -hmm. So that, that makes perfect sense to me. My, my, my uh, granddaughter got a phone call from Florida and her husband is a, is a male nurse and they were offering bonus money if he would come to Florida. So it's like you're, like you're a smart tech worker and, the, and San Jose calls you. That's what's going on in Florida. They, they're trying to get medical people here and will bonus them to show up. Awesome. Interesting. Um, yeah, I, I recently moved to Texas, um, Austin, yeah. and um, the, real estate, the real estate market is on fire. It is crazy. Uh, well, but see, yeah. that's part of what this year is going to be about, because do I think that's going to stop? No. As a matter of fact, California has got some decisions to make. So one of the things we're going to talk about the next few months in these in these reports we just had a, to prepare for, I do, I have a radio show and we interviewed some people that were accountants, people I've known for a long time. So just looking at some of the proposed legislation in California and for the Fed. So it's a kind of a double whammy. So I think probably we're going to have higher federal taxes. That, that makes sense to me. So if that goes to 39% and you live in California, you're already at 13.3 at the top end. Well, the projected is that that's going to go to 16.3. But there's another federal adder to that. And it says that if you make over um, 400 grand, you're going to have the Social Security tax kick back in. So right now that ends at about 140 grand. Everybody's, you know, paying their share. The employer and the uh, employee pay seven or seven and a half percent. And then it ends at 140 and isn't touched after that. Well, they want to reenact that after 400 grand. Here's what's significant about and I didn't realize this till I kind of poked into it, 40% of taxes paid in California are paid by one half percent of the households, a half a percent, 40% of the revenue. Well, you, you're going to, if those two things pass, the Social Security and raising the state, they'll be at a 63% tax level for the, for the privilege of living in California. That ain't going to fly. Mm-hmm. It just won't. What's what's the state tax in uh, Texas? Zero. <laughs> nothing. Yeah, yeah. Nothing. Yeah, and, exactly. and in Florida, yeah. so you're going to have yeah. you're going to have those two areas be the destination for different things. Mm-hmm. I think tech is going to Austin, mm-hmm. and that doesn't mean they're going to completely leave California. Mm-hmm. I've got to really study that. I I don't want to say California is going to go down the tubes. I am going to, actually, I'm going to do devil's advocate and do everything I can to completely understand the whole scope of why they attract all the brains they do, mm-hmm. you know, but if you, what if you add a wealth tax? See, that was the other thing. When California came up with the idea of a wealth tax, that blew me away. That was sort of the last straw because I thought, wow, if that ever came up, I thought that would be a federal game, not a state thing. Mm-hmm. 
the fact that they brought that up, I went, and then they want to chase you for 10 years after you leave. Mm-hmm. If they enact that wealth tax, there's way more billionaires in California than anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Well, what do those billionaires do? You think they have 50 houses for rent? No, they own businesses like Elon Musk. And it's a good reason he's not there. Mm-hmm. So I think California has some really important decisions to make. And I'm not trying to, I don't want them to land hard. I, they treated me really well and I, I love living there, but you start taxing people's wealth that are billionaires. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one of the interviews I want to do in the next, uh, I've interviewed this gentleman before, uh, Raul Paul. I don't know if you know that name. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm sure you do. Bitcoin guy, right? Yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. So I've interviewed, I interviewed him one time because I want, he used a pretty strong word um, in, in an article or even a, maybe it was a solo talk and he was talking about a depression and I, he, I, I respect him. I don't think he tossed that word around lightly. So I interviewed him because I wanted him to repeat that for the audience that I have. But I, you know what, if you ever watch him interview people, he's friends with these billionaires. I mean, he worked with them or he was their consultant and for maybe he's one of them. But at any rate, I think he would understand what their habit would be if you tax their wealth. Mm-hmm. I would like to know, what do you think they'll do? Yeah. Will they move out of California or move out of the country? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was um, at the Austin DMV um, last month and um the per- person helping me was saying the last out of the last 30 people who had applied for a new driver's license, 20, <laughs> 20 were from California. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. Yeah. That's uh, when you're, when we build houses, you know, you, you watch the cars coming to look at your houses. Uh-huh. They're all from other States. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I have, um, I opened up, um, uh, our talk to for questions. I asked uh, people on Twitter uh, what kind of questions they would have for you. And I had several questions um, that were very similar. I, I wanted to group together. So like I know real estate can be very diverse, different markets, different states, urban, suburban, you know, rural. So it's hard to generalize, but it's one of your thoughts on these three similar questions. So um, someone says, will we have a real estate crash? Is it too high now to buy a house? Another person says, I'd be curious to know um, what Bruce thinks if there will be a correction post-COVID or if this is the new normal. And another person says, how will looming evictions affect housing prices? Should first-time home buyers delay their purchases until later this year? Okay. So. Okay. I wrote a report called the California crash saying the prices could go down by half. So a really good question is, did I sell my house, my residence? So that would have been a really rational thing to do. Mm-hmm. At the time, it was worth well, a million four. And I thought about it, and I even responded to an ad of a guy that had a rental. And I called. I said, I'm not your typical renter. I'll, I'll pay you a year in advance. Um, he said, wow, that sounds really great. He says, let me ask you a question. Do you have any pets? And there was a pause, and I went, I'm so glad you asked that question because I just found out why I want to own a house. I don't want anybody to ask me anything. So to the people that are going to wait to own your own little square in the world, mm-hmm. I'd say that's not, that's not the right attitude. You don't, that's not why you own it. Mm-hmm. You own it because it feels different. It does. Mm-hmm. I, man, that was a big goal for me. 
I mean, I got married at 17. It was 21 until I owned a house. And I literally remember mowing my grass for the first time and feeling like a man. Hmm. I had my name on a grant deed. And I didn't have any equity and the windows didn't open. <laughs> but that was a big deal to me because that was in my mindset. So no, don't put off home ownership. There's a if you're looking at the chart of prices, please combine it with the chart of interest rates. Okay. Cause have you ever, ever had a chance to borrow money at this ever? Now that's a good question ever. That's so Sean O'Toole and I, he and I are pals. We decided to go to Washington DC and go into the uh, library of Congress. And what did we do? We searched We researched interest rates back hundreds of years to figure out how low these interest rates were. See, we know that these are low, like crazy low. Mm -hmm. So that's my opinion. Owning a house is something that you probably should do, not because the math might be deficient in, like you think the price is gonna go down. So let's talk about price going down. Mm -hmm. Does it feel like the environment right now is going to aggressively go after people for foreclosures? My answer would be no. And you need that for price damage. Mm -hmm. You you do. I mean, again, historically, if I look at something, that's the key thing. And it because it messes with the appraisal world. If you have one in 10 sale, that's a foreclosure, doesn't mess with it at all. If it goes out of control, then it's serious. But the other thing is, this wasn't the fault of the borrower, per se. This was an event. I think they're going to be very lenient and say, yeah, we're going to put it at the other end. We're not going to forgive the interest rate, but the interest rate was small, so small, it really doesn't make too much difference. We'll tack it on the end. We'll call it a day. I, I think that's going to be handled. Now, the answer, the question about renting, getting your rent paid. Um, yeah, you're going to, that's one of the reasons why I don't have any more rentals in California because of the process of favoring the tenant. Um, even without the coronavirus, doing an eviction in California is no picnic. And so that's a very, whoever's in the house is favored more than the person that owns it. So the likelihood of you getting all your rent in California this year, if you're not already getting it, by the way, that's being over-exaggerated. I think that the charts I see, and I know property managers that have several thousand units, people are paying it over 95% of the clip. So do I think it's a, going to be a catastrophe and cause all kinds of foreclosures? No, I don't. Now, there's Wall Street's preparing billions of dollars for that event too, which prevents them from getting back to the lender and being discounted. So they're maybe they're buying. They're thinking, "I'm going. We're going to buy all these houses and rent them back to the people that lost them." That type of thing. I just don't see it getting out of control. I just don't. Got it. And then, I mean, to your point about affordability index. We're still, I think your last, um, last month you're saying we're at about 28% in California, yeah. was it? Yeah, so we, you're at 28. Hmm. So see, that's the other thing too, is you go, okay, in California, well, what's the journey of price increases from 28 to 17? Mm-hmm. It's huge. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's what's interesting. California could, could have some pretty good years in front of it. It's yeah. interesting that it didn't happen in 2019 so I think urgency has to stay in place mm-hmm. for that to occur. I, again, to go back to 2019, 
that didn't occur in 2019 with better set of charts and certain much more certainty happened in 2020 because of this colliding of the two groups. I'm taking mine off and somebody else has to have one. I think for you to have pretty strong increases, you have to have that urgency remain. Got it. Okay, Bruce, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Um, <laughs> I'm going to ask you um, that what your the probabilities in your head that you see at this current moment for the price to be higher or lower in in different in a few markets. But um, a few disclaimers here. This is just maybe Bruce's thoughts right now. He he can change his thoughts obviously next week, next <laughs> month. You know, he's constantly researching. So don't you know hold anyone uh, don't hold anyone to this. But just current. Kind of random thinking right now um california in three years um let's say 2024 do you think the price will be higher in 2024 than now or lower and what probability would you give it see i i know you want that answer but it's it's not i don't even know how to answer it honestly because i don't know i don't know if we're going to have round two of a coronavirus okay I, I don't I don't know if the businesses that got closed are going to actually just like how many how many percentage what percentage of restaurants mm -hmm. I'm not buying the unemployment number that we have uh -huh. so I mean I think it's I think it's probably quite a bit higher I can tell you this that if you if you have low inventory matched with this urgency you're going to go up mm -hmm. that's 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 what's going to happen if you have tons of foreclosures then you'll go down but. Those are the ear. See, I don't have to tell you. I can just point to a chart and say, if this emerges, that's mm -hmm. going to be the damage path. Got it. I don't. So I already kind of answered it. Do I think they're going to aggressively pursue foreclosures? The answer is no. Yeah. Now, the other thing that's interesting in California, that's not true in Texas and not in Florida, is we're not building single family homes to any great extent. We built 60,000 single family homes in 2020, approximately. We built 60,000 single family homes in 1981 when interest rates were 17%. So, and a, a peak year for California is 150,000. So we're building at about a 40% clip during a boom for the last 10 years. Well, what it, why that's important, there's, when you have, and builders are the worst timing experts ever. You think they'd be the best, they're not because when you have a boom market, like in 2005 and six, how do you go into your office as the owner of the company? Say, guys, we're closing up shop. I know everything's selling, but it, it looks dangerous to me. We're going to close shop and buy the lots uh, two years from now for nothing. You can't have that conversation, especially if you're a public builder. And because you're getting, you're getting evidence that things are doing so well, so late in the game, you continue to do what you do. What happens then is you have 150,000 homes built in 2005 and they all go auctioning off themselves in the next year or two, that impacts the market. That adds to the, not, not only to you have the REO pile, you have the builder auction pile and everybody that bought a house is now in upside down territory because the builders say, I got to off the rest of this inventory. So that's not a danger for California. In Florida and Texas, we're building the heck out of everything. But the price point's different, a lot different. And interest rates, you know, making the house payment less than rent is, is an amazing thing. Yeah. And you're getting, like you say, you're getting tons of migration into Texas. Is that going to stop? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. So if I asked, if you asked me that question about Texas, I'd say it'd be higher. If I, in Florida, I think it'd be higher. 
-hmm. Now, traditionally, those two states don't move like California. Mm -hmm. They don't. Yeah. Now, will that change? See, it could. See, that's one of the things that this year I have to analyze. Okay, why did California double the median price of the nation? Because it didn't, it wasn't always true. In 1974, it was three grand higher than the median price of the, of the nation, 34 grand, 31 grand. And all of a sudden, we left the building and got to 150%, then 200%, then 220%. So typically what happens when we get to that level, there's a few things happen. If you're a senior and you have a house in California and you want to relocate, that money goes much further somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So you got tons of equity and now you could literally retire in Texas and Florida and live in a much nicer house for much less money. Mm -hmm. that's, that's part of what happens. There's people that can't afford it. They migrate out too. So the higher your prices relative to the other neighboring states in the country, you lose people. That's historically what happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things is in Austin the past few months, it, it feels like um, the price appreciation is so crazy in the past. Um, so ever since uh, realtors are saying ever since uh, mid-December, so something happened in the markets here in Austin where um, – things started to go 20 to 30% above listing as like very common. It just started to, and then the, it hasn't stopped. So um, the market has like, n the comps are literally like, um, they're from a couple <laughs> months ago, but they're, they're like 30% yeah, like lower or anything, you know? Yeah. And so you can't, and then the inventory is at a historic low. Well, that's what I was just going to ask you is how much inventory is for sale. Yeah. So once again, you have this urgency mm -hmm. now, and I fit that bill. When I, when I decided to move from California, mm -hmm. I came here with my wife and we gave ourselves three days to buy a house that was over a million dollars. Were we shopping for a deal? No, we were shopping for our next house. So we, we were sort of that typical person. We had an urgency. How many people buy a house in three days? Well, we had the connections to say, I want every listing that matches this description for a 90 mile journey from Naples to Sarasota. And that's what we did for three days is look at every house that fit that description. That's the typical buyer in Austin right now, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. They're not, they're not bargain hunting. They just want one. <laughs> yeah. Especially with the, the migration into the, into the area with all this, all these companies, you know, lots of people, they're forced, they don't want to go to apartment. They don't want to rent, or at least some people don't. And so, yeah, it's a crazy market. Um, I wanted to ask about your quadrants. So, you know, I've been following you for such a long time where, you know, I've, I've gone through a few of your courses and, you know, over time you've, you know, shared kind of your philosophies of quadrant one is kind of the beginning of a cycle. You have certain strategies as an investor, quadrant two and three. By the time it gets to quadrant four, you have a lot of exuberance. Um, right. But it could be the, the best time in terms of price appreciation. You know, it could be the highest. But it's also some place, some, a place where you can get out of maybe some more problematic, some kind of, you know, uh, properties that you're not in love with, right? That's probably the quadrant to, to, to get, get rid of those. If you're in love with some properties, you can stick, stick around for the next cycle. Um, but in this kind of view of these four quadrants, like, what's going on? I mean, I, I've been kind of... Um, uh, it seems like we've ever since, you know, let's say 
end of 2012, you know, starting 2013, the market's just, you know, kind of gone on this like continuous, there's been a few pauses, but we've, we haven't seen kind of a correction. And then now we we're in 2021 and, you know, affordability is still ways out, you know, foreclosures aren't necessarily, you know, looming in mass quantity, let's say 40% level or not. So it seems pretty optimistic for real estate. So does, does your model, these four quadrants, is it still applicable? You know, do you still yeah. use that? And then, yeah, how do you, how do you think about that? Well, the quadrant system kind of came up from my own experience as a real estate investor. So when we started this conversation from 80 to 89, I ran an ad in the newspaper that said, honest investors base cash for homes, call me first. And my phone rang a certain percentage of time, you know, every month. I bought my share of houses. And then in 1990, about the time I had the trouble with those custom homes, my ad got twice as many phone calls. And, but most of them were people that were upside down. And I thought, wow, all the deals are gone. I, I it's sort of like, I thought, okay, well, the business is over. And then I, I, I asked a realtor for an MLS. And I looked in the MLS and I'm like, oh my gosh, they're sitting here. Like you could just cherry pick them. The lenders who owned the properties were putting in uh, unbelievable prices for some of the inventory because it was, it was vacant and it was a mess. And so all of a sudden I went from talking to only people that owned houses to talking to no one that owned houses. All I did was build relationships with lenders, uh, not lenders. I found out that was a mistake. I made friends with the people that controlled the lender inventory. I wanted to be their number one guy. You need a cash sale, call me. That's what we got known for. Same thing with true with auctions, not trustee sales, but auctions. I learned to understand when an auction company was going to mess up. I understood what they had to do right and wrong. And when they did it wrong, it was wonderful. So um, we even videotaped an auction where I bought all the houses at 40 cents on the dollar because they did not know what the heck they were doing. Unbelievable. So what happened was the quadrant system basically is says when you're in, we're in quadrant four, if you're a home buyer, can you chase REOs? No, there are none. So you have to deal with people that own properties. You probably have to take on the fixer uppers or you're going to add square footage and value to it. That's what you're going to do. Or you build houses. That's what quadrant four said. Now, as, as quadrant four matures, you have to be really careful about holding the wrong inventory. What's on fire? Land. Land in Florida is going up probably 40% every six months. Yeah. Now, when land goes down, I mean, like one second after quadrant four, you get into quadrant one and you own land, it could go down by 100%. It could be completely worthless. So just to give you an example, after the, after the downturn started, I got a call from a guy saying he got this piece of land. 20 acres in Marino Balony. He went on to explain it for about five minutes. And at the end of that explanation, I said, to be honest with you, I can't, I can't pin a positive value on what you own. I think it has negative worth. He says, yeah, I know. <laughs> so the thing that was the best thing in the world a year ago, and that's why quadrant four is important to understand when you're reaching the limits. Now, affordability is one of those limits. You have euphoria going on, and then all of a sudden you get to a breaking point where lenders cannot say yes. Now, one of the problems with Texas 
is they've never reached an affordability repetitive breaking point because they usually don't go up in price like crazy and neither has Florida. So you don't have that history. So that's, that's an interesting dilemma. You also have migrating people coming in that maybe have more wealth. They're bringing in more money than Texas is used to. And maybe they make more money than Texas is used to. So you could see that continuing for a while. Um, so quadrant one is the, the end of the boom. Now, if you get into a foreclosure scenario that goes crazy, well, then you change your buying habits. By the way, your negotiating skills change too. So now in quadrant, quadrant two, I'm not talking to human beings. I'm talking to uh, realtors that control, excuse me, control inventory. That's a very different negotiation because what are they interested in? They're interested in the easiest commission check possible. So let's say I didn't know you, you're a realtor. You have a, you have a listing that I'm really interested in. So here's an exact example. A guy, a listing agent that knew of me, but didn't, we had never met, had three triplexes listed in Moreno Valley for 40 grand. When I got to his office, it looked like Krispy Kreme donut. It was like a long line of people wanting to make offers on that property. That didn't surprise me. So I literally was in line with my offer. I sat it on the desk and the offer was uh, full price, all cash. Here's a cashier's check in full amount. He looked at me, he says, I don't see any other offer, offers because I had just become the easiest commission check for him. And we did business for years. So the idea is how do you control them to say, I'm going to get first shot. When you're talking to individuals, that's a whole different skill set, very different skill set. That's the quadrant changes what, how you, the skills you need. Your team building in quadrant two with people that control inventory, auction companies, REOs, and short sales. And in quadrant four, you're very good over the phone getting people to say yes to other things. Um, now, quadrant two is when prices are devastated and the mood is bad. So here's a perfect example of me knowing what to do in quadrant two. I'm interviewing Doug Duncan, the chief economist of Fannie Mae, first quarter of 2015. To prepare for the interview, I do a study for the Fannie Mae's year of 2014, read their quarterly financial statements. And in it, it said that 25% uh, of Florida's losses came from one state, Florida. Well, that put a big smile on my face because California was already in quadrant two. Well, why was, why was Florida still in quadrant, uh, sorry, California was in quadrant four. Why was Florida still in two? They had a four-year foreclosure process. I got a big smile on my face because I know what to do in quadrant two. And you're not, you don't have any competition. You buy land. And so I'll call up my best friend, Alex. I said, there's got to be a, a builder that has a track of homes he can't use. And we were in escrow the next day. And that's where my rentals are. So that's the advantage of understanding where you are because you know the inventory to chase that's not popular and you get it for nothing. Got it. I mean, like, let's say California quadrant four, when did the quadrant four start in California? And then how long can a quadrant four last? I mean, is it just until it hits that, you know, affordability yes, and some other factors? That's the only repetitive thing that I've ever seen. See, that's, that's why I come to those conclusions. I'm not married to affordability. Show me, show me a chart that tells me it's over. 
I want to know it's over before everyone else does. And I want to know it's over before there's ramifications to what I own, right? So affordability number reaching 17, 1980, 89, 2005. If you had sold all your stuff, you would be selling to a euphoric crowd. And two years later, it would not be euphoric. It would be inventories up by 300%. Foreclosures are up 1,000%. Unemployment is up. Building is down repetitively. Now, you want to know what happens in Texas? Do the study. I mean, literally, that's what you have to do. Sometimes it's industry sensitive. Now, see, so Grand Junction, Colorado, one of my first major purchases was in Grand Junction after oil shale left. Well, that town was really dependent on one industry. So there was no statistic for that. You just lost half of your workers. Your city was 50% vacant. So that was a little scary to buy in that environment. But, you know, I did because I thought, well, they're probably going to build another one of these someday, and I'm buying it for 25% of replacement value. So that's why I bought stuff. But in, when you're looking for a number that's been repetitive and say, this is the end of quadrant four, for California, for me, it's been affordability, and you're not close to it. But I, I thought we were not going to follow that rule in 2019. If we didn't go up with these stats, what happens when we have worse stats? That was my mindset. If we can't go up with what this is, if it gets a little worse, then we might go down. And that's really what I thought. Um, I want to ask your opinion on builders. Um, so let's say you have Pulte Homes, Lenar, um, KB Homes, Toll Brothers, etc. Um, what do you think their prospects are over the next, let's say, two years? Um, do you think you know, they will do well as companies um, with kind of what's going on in the real estate, or do you think there will be challenges? Oh, my goodness. I mean, I don't know what in the world they would be able to build that wouldn't sell. <laughs> their, now, their challenge might be to get some windows. <laughs> you know, the material costs are, are going up because of the shortages. I, I suppose the shortages will get straightened out, but uh, right now, that's a challenge. So, I mean, literally... When we get a permit, we order the windows. You don't need them for a couple months, but you may, you may not get them for three. So that's the kind of thing that we're having to do is order appliances and windows and actually think that all through before we start building. But do I think the builders will be having a good time? Yeah, I sure do. Now, are you asking that for stock investments? That's, that's, I'm just curious. Well, I'm not. Yeah, it's like I, I hate telling people. I, I hate telling people what to buy because no, I know. Yeah, I don't. Want no, but I'm asking. Actually, but I, I don't have any idea about yeah, where but, builder stocks are. Are they historically high right now? Yeah. So um, I I have been personally looking into it just because I was listening to some of your interviews and you. It just seemed like builders, you know, would be um, some of the companies that would do well at least over the next few years as we have just kind of this demand shift, it seems like. And, and especially like new houses, like people moving out of urban areas who have some money, tech jobs, remote jobs. You oh, know, yeah. It just seems like, you know, they could sell as much as they build, especially in the yeah. right cities, you know? Um, well, we're not, we're not building a lot of homes, you know, yeah. but we can't keep anything we finish. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah. It, just, it just seems like a, like a definitely an interesting thing. I'm wondering, um, I noticed like some markets have just been str super strong. Um, 
And do you, like, for example, you have Texas, you have Florida, you know, um, suburbs, California, you have Denver, Provo, different, lots of different places around the country. Is there some type of um, pattern going on? Is it? Yeah. yeah what, what's, yeah. what's your take? In 2000, in early in 2005, we wrote a report that was a predecessor to the crash because I could see this stuff was coming. And I, and this was called California Countdown. And what we did is an analysis of where do the migration patterns go when California reaches this affordability number? Is there a repetitive pattern? And there is. And that reacts. So you send people with money to Idaho. Well, what happens to the Idaho market? It has these people selling their house for 600 grand and they're going into a place that's 300 grand. Well, the 300 grand turns to 400 grand real quick because this guy is coming saying, oh, that's cheap. I got to have one or maybe two. Chinese investor does that to Irvine or does it to San Jose. I was speaking in front of a group of Chinese investors and um, at the end of the Q&A, and he kind of told me, you know, I just sold uh, like a condo in China that I bought for a million dollars for $10 million, something like that. And so he just went into Irvine and said, I'll take five of them. And his, in his mindset, he expects them all to go up 10 times. Because what happens is when you get a result like that, you, you, first of all, you kind of credit yourself. Now, I am a real estate genius. <laughs> Whether you are or not, you, you think that and you think that your past experience is going to be replicated. Well, that's sometimes your buyer in an area, especially if you come from an area. See, Texas, don't they love Californians to show up? <laughs> well, it's, some do some it's cheap. Yeah. 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 So that's I mean, if, if, if you get an interview, if you're, you're a Texas real estate agent and somebody from California just sold a million houses, you have a big smile on your face because you know, oh, that's going to be an easy sale. I'm having a hard time hearing you a little bit. Okay, all right. Um, so, yeah. Um, um, yeah, that's fascinating. Um, what do you think about, I've got some questions from, uh, several people wanted to know your thoughts on REIT, so real estate investment trusts. Do you have any interest in them? What sectors do you think might be more interesting in terms of, for example, someone was asking, um, you know, with, with, with REITs, are you bullish on REITs? Um, for example, multifamily, residential, data center, healthcare, you know, elderly, et cetera. Um, what are your thoughts? I, you know, I, I'm not a pro on REITs, so I, I'm going to be honest with you. And that's it's always the best policy. I'm sure you know more about REITs than I do. I, apartment REITs has probably had their day because the reason apartments had their day was people lost their homes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now a lot of people want out of an apartment, I think, into, uh, into a single family. You're also going to do some things that are going to benefit the housing market. So if the Biden uh, administration says you have a $15,000 tax credit, if you buy a house, uh, that's going to help housing. It's going to help housing more in Texas and Florida because 15 grand is the entire down payment. In California, it'll mean much less. Um, if you start forgiving college debt, the same thing. But you know, if I guess if I had to pick a segment, I'd certainly say seniors or a segment, but it's not, I've always controlled my own investments. Yeah. I don't delegate it to anybody. Yeah. I'm curious. I want to actually ask you about controlling your own investments with real estate because I mean, Warren Buffett has said in the past real estate, he likes real estate, but the big kind of challenge is the management, you know, with tenants. And 
in my experience, like I love real estate. I love the concept of, you know, kind of this the ability to own something, the land, you know, the building, the usage to, to go um, ride the trend of a growing area, especially if it's just an area that you see in 30 years, which is going to blow up even more. Right. But the challenge um, in my experience has always been kind of the tenant management. If I hand off property management, I don't get as much of a kind of as much, I'm kind of meticulous. I really want things well done and property managements tend to, I don't know, I, I don't feel as comfortable, but when I manage my own properties, it just, you get those phone calls, you know, you know, those text messages, something plumbing has blown up or something, you know, you need, <laughs> I need your help right now. You know, it's like this video of a sprinkler just like shooting up in the air, you know, it's like, I don't know what to do. And you have to like drop everything for this stuff. What's your take on management, especially with single family houses or, you know, uh, residential units? Um, do you manage your own stuff or do you just, you know, delegate it? How do you find the right people to do that? Well, that is the challenge is finding the right people. Do I manage some my own stuff? No. Um, so I'll go back to the Grand Junction, Colorado example. I, so this is a long time ago. So this is 84, 85. I remember this lady's name, Mary Simpson. Mary Simpson managed my properties. I never had to go there. I was in Colorado and I was in California. She was a godsend. But how did I get to Mary Simpson? I interviewed every property manager in Grand Junction, Colorado, every one. So I was really meticulous about picking who I thought I could trust from a distance. Nothing is easy go investing from a distance. I live in Florida now. Um, I built the homes that I own in Leesburg about four years ago, four years ago. You know how many times I've gone to see them? How many? <laughs> None. Really? Wow. None. None. Not even after they're done? Once they were done, <laughs> I've not seen them. So yeah, when we get final and yeah. stuff. Uh -huh. But no, I, I've delegated it to a guy, gun property management, and he's awesome. Hmm. I don't discount my fees because I have volume. I'm his best customer. Mm -hmm. That's what I want. I, like the commission check for the realtor. I want me to be the easiest. If he calls me up and says, we got a problem, it's fix it. So I'm like you, but I delegate it. I don't want that phone call. I don't want that phone call. That would aggravate me. But he knows that he can keep those in great shape because I will say yes to what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. I don't go, eh, can we wait on that? No, I don't do that. Interesting. But, but it doesn't take my time. Yeah. I mean, over it, also, it also helps owning the right stuff yeah. in the right area. So, See, that's what, see, California investors, by and large, what do you own as rentals? Well, you get deals on stuff. Mm -hmm. That's what happens. Okay, wow. Eh, it's not a great area, but wow, what a steal. I'll rent it and I'll make cash flow. It goes up. Well, the area doesn't really change. It can go up 300%. still a crummy area. <laughs> mm -hmm. People still are parking their cars on their lawns. You know, mm -hmm. that's just, just going to be a truism about certain areas. It's always going to be a, a, a headache. When you own a, literally, when you own a property in an area, what I drive through and I think in my head, what percentage of households will live in this area? Most California investors own properties in areas that will, would be occupied by maybe 25% of, of Californians or uh, whatever, wherever it is. In other words, the 75% of the best tenants go at, the wife's going, no, don't even stop, don't even stop the car. I want to own 
my rental houses where 100% of the people would say that's safe. I'll live there. Mm -hmm. That's the big difference. So your starting point is have great inventory. And that's why the new houses is really nice because it's just, it's got a big advantage. Yeah. I mean, did you, um, I mean, did it help to, in terms of management to concentrate your real estate holdings with this new, you know, building development you did in Leesburg, Florida, and to just kind of, well, <laughs> yeah, it, that is, there's a plus and a minus to that. Uh-huh. Um, the minus is you have a hur- you can have a hurricanes in Florida. Uh-huh. So a hurricane can go over like a lot of my inventory in one shot. <laughs> <laughs> So you, uh-huh. and why that why that comes to mind is it actually happened. We made the uh, hurricane channel. My track of homes made the hurricane channel pretty much about a year within a year of it being done. Now the nice thing about Florida construction is that because of all the regulations, you're building these things to 160 mile an hour wind. You have to have flood zone over the floodplain. Uh, oddly enough, insurance is very reasonable in in florida even for hurricane insurance so we had at the time we had 20 houses that were standing there finished and our total repair bill from uh gun property management was five grand on 20 houses so that was nice yeah yeah. but but yes it's easier to manage it's easier to manage them if they're one one location and nice inventory so that is that is true Mm -hmm. got it um if um, so, one person had a question. If um, I wanted to invest twenty million dollars in cash <laughs> in real estate, what would be the best thing to do? Or I mean, obviously, there's no best thing there because real estate is such a huge field, and so you know, so many options. But I mean, let's take it just as a game. You know, no consequences. No, we're not telling him what to do. But just in a, any ideas, like twenty million dollars in cash, and but and you 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 believe in real estate or something. Like, how can you get involved? Is it buying a bunch of single family houses? Is it buying an apartment building, commercial, you know, something else? Like, what are some thoughts? I don't think there's one size fits all. You know, Mm -hmm. what we take people to Florida and what we call like a boot camp. So in March, Mm -hmm. we're actually going to do that. So there'll be people that go with us and, you know, go see what we're up to. But before they do that, and by the way, at 1230, that's what I am. I have a conversation with somebody that wants to go to Florida. That doesn't mean he's going to get to go to Florida, by the way, because I'm going to interview him. And what I'm trying to do is find out if you're if you're if you should do it, um, whatever he made 20 million dollars on. Maybe is what he knows. Uh-huh. And so what I would do is if you're going to do real estate, you become your own source of knowledge. So be patient. And you know what? Everybody. Uh, you know, single families, I'm not saying it's the best, it's the best thing. It's the best thing for Bruce Norris because it's what I know. Mm-hmm. And the reason I like it is I can get rid of one of them instead of a, a hundred unit building. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that I have that flexibility. Mm-hmm. So is it, is it less efficient? Yeah. As far as if you have a hundred units in one spot, but can, can I attract a better tenant by and large? Yes. So there's mm-hmm. positives and negatives, but $20 million dollars. By the way, we have we have investors that are selling that kind of portfolio out of California and moving to Florida. That yeah. is that is not a uh, an unusual thing. Sure, sure. I, I just had a conversation yesterday, so that guy's got a portfolio of pretty good sized stuff. But you do have people selling apartment buildings. We have one guy that's building eleven houses off of a, a ten unit proper, uh, apartment sale in L.A. Mm-hmm. So 
that's not uncommon. Got it. Um, um, I'm wondering with housing, let's say going up and do you have any concerns of it worsening like inequality in America? Yeah. With that's a great and question. Nots? Yeah. That's a great question. And we have the solution. Mm-hmm. I've been invited to uh, speak in Washington, D.C., in front of Fannie Mae and FHA several times. And every time I'm there, I'm there with an investor as an investor hat, but I always bring up this program because I think it solves what you just said. Um, you could have a nothing down loan problem. You're going to give a $15,000 tax credit. Well, but the problem with that, it costs 15 grand. Why not just do a nothing down loan program? Okay. So qualify them. You know what the safest loan is in is America? Go back 50 years. It's a VA nothing down loan. Mm-hmm. The safest loan by far. So, okay. What do they want? They want somebody to have some reserves. The down payment is immaterial, apparently, because if that's the safest loan, then the down payment isn't the big factor. But if you had a nothing down loan opportunity, you would give literally millions of people a shot to own their own place with interest rates that start with a two that would lower their housing cost forever. Do you have rentals right now? Yes. Uh-huh. Can I get a 30-year fixed rental rate? Uh, no, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you See how absurd you think that is? <laughs> sure, you sure. can get a 30-year fixed housing cost while your, while your earnings go up. That In five or 10 years, that loan payment will feel like a car payment. You could do that for America. Now, here's the, here's the challenge. Will nothing down create foreclosures? You bet. What percentage? Okay, let's say it's big, 15%. How do you solve that? Really simple. You have one foreclosure process for every 50 states. It trumps every foreclosure process. You just have one for this program. If you're six months behind, you have an opening bid at this, at this trustee sale. Is the opening bid having anything to do with the principal? No, that stays in place. The opening bid is a late payment. So you got a $250,000 loan at 2.5% interest, and it goes up for sale after six months payment. What's the opening bid? Pretty 12 high. grand yeah. or less? Mm-hmm. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Well, that's who gets to take over the principal. Did anybody lose any money? Nope. Give first shot to the homeowner, that the next homeowner? So let's say you have a guy that wants in. He's self-employed. He doesn't qualify for the nothing down loan program, but he bailed out the system and bought that house and put up the down payment. That's called a simple assumption. Years ago, when I first bought my first house, I didn't qualify because I, I didn't, I, I probably couldn't have. I took over somebody's VA loan and what they call the simple assumption. You sent in the paperwork, not your financials and a $45 check and your name took the place of the guy that was on it, period. That was it. That's what you you create a loan program that has a simple assumption clause that whoever is next writes a check for the fee processing processing fee and is now the owner of the house and the loan. Done. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would reach across the aisle and make a lot of people homeowners that have never had a chance. Uh-huh. That would be a very smart social move yeah. without any financial ramifications. If you sell a million more homes at 15 grand a pop, that's to me, that's, that's a waste. I no reason to do that. Yeah. What, that's fascinating because just 
like a few days ago, I was thinking about this issue, and I was like, yeah, if the, if, if the government could actually, you know, do something like a no down um, mortgage backing, and then also if they could even somehow get rid of the private mortgage, you know, insurance part of that for you know low down payments, if they can back the mortgage themselves, yeah. um, that would be the biggest kind of enabler for low income Americans to get into housing, which in the next 10 years and 20 years, there's going to be, I, it's hard for me to see like, you know, if we don't do something, we're going to possibly, you know, there's going to be, you know, more of the have and have nots, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, and, it's, it's, and, it's a very dangerous, uh, it's a da very da dangerous in, uh, time that we've got where we have yeah. like the stock market, you know, it's everybody that's got stocks are exactly. like, wow, this is wonderful. And Bitcoin and houses and all that. Well, if you don't have a thing, well, man, you just feel like I just got buried again. Mm -hmm. you know, all the stuff is going up and I can't, I can't get in and maybe never get in. That feels bad. Exactly. Plus for me, I mean, I had pride of ownership, man. I, by the way, that house I was, I told you, I didn't yeah. sell. I sold that ultimately for 750 grand. Oh, so wow. hanging on to hanging on to yeah. that house cost me 650 grand. Yeah. Would I do it again? Absolutely. Yeah. Because I didn't want to ask somebody if I could have a pet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the things I've personally gleaned from from um, real estate, but also some of your just pondering, kind of thinking about some of the things you've said also over the years is is there's um a bullishness about long term real estate that I don't think the general public completely understands like in its essence. But when I look at real estate, it's something that because of the law system and the legal system and political stability, et cetera, you practically own, you know, that or the rights at least to that piece of land forever. You know, you can, you can transfer to your next generation. They can transfer, they can transfer. Of course, we don't yeah. know what's going to happen 100, 200, 300 years down the road. But the concept is this thing is like transferable over many, many generations. And it's a, a proven thing of value, you know, to have something, especially in a, in a place where it's desirable, people need a place to live. And so in some ways, when the market goes down and let's say people's um, attitude, sentiment toward housing is, is pessimistic. You know, they're like, oh, it's never gonna come back. I remember in 2009, 2010, that, the, the sentiment was so pessimistic, like just, yeah. you know, people just didn't want to touch housing, et cetera. But then I'm like, you guys don't understand that the essence of, of ownership of real estate is immensely powerful because of its time frame. It's, you know, there's no end to it. Um, what are your thoughts of that, um, that angle? Oh, I think, I mean, it, to me, obviously, it's very important to, that real, owning real estate changed my life. I went from not owning a house to owning a free and clear house in four years just because the real estate went up. So I didn't even have a rent payment anymore. That changed what I could do. It was a big deal. Um, it's, an, it's interesting. There's some tax laws that are, I'm glad they're there, but I'm kind of surprised too. So I just sold a residence for about 500 grand more than I paid for it. Did I have to pay tax on it? No. Any other asset you can do that on? No. Um, I bought a property. I just closed the escrow on this. So I'll just use two examples. Uh, bought it for 80,000, sold it for 460, owned it for 10 years, got to depreciate it as if it was going down in value at the same time it was going up. 
sold it at 460 and bought two new houses with it in an exchange. Didn't pay any tax on that gain. So real estate is pretty protected, you know? So I always think there's a room somewhere where people are going, okay, how do we, <clears throat> how do we tax this stuff? And those rules are still in place. I got to do a 1031 exchange and not pay tax on a big gain. I got to depreciate an asset that went up the whole time as if it was going to go down to zero. And I got to sell a residence that I can do what every, every few years and make 500 grand and not pay a tax. Mm -hmm. Those are, those are big gifts. Mm -hmm. If you sold, if you sold your stuff in stocks, is there any such thing? Can you exchange that? I wish I've always wished that there was a 1031 exchange for, for stocks. That would be my dream. That's right. <laughs> There's also the mortgage interest deduction, you know, for your yeah. personal residence. That's a great, you know, tax benefit yeah. as well. Um, yeah. So I, I think those benefits, mm -hmm. if they extend those to uh, millions of more people, I think you'll have a happier society for sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Cause yeah. what ends up happening as soon as I end up with a free and clear house, Guess what I got? I got a credit line. Mm -hmm. And I became an entrepreneur. It's like, holy cow. Yeah. I don't I, I don't have to have borrowed money. I, I have it like in a, a savings in a kitty and I only use it for a profitable thing. So I'd run out and buy a house for half price and use my credit line, pay off my credit line and keep the profit. And wow. <laughs> yeah. Off to the races. It was fun. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is this is going to get controversial, but I mean, some people are pushing this thing called universal basic income where they feel the government should give every person, every household a thousand or $2,000 a month um, to live on. But on the flip side, if you can just fix the entry point for housing to make it more supportive where no down payment, you know, super low, you know, two, two point something percent interest, um, then it, in a way you're securing the, 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 highest expense of most households at exactly. a fixed price exactly. low. So it's, it's, it's an immense amount of, of benefit where maybe you don't need to give people $2,000 a month free no. handouts. You know, if you can no. just make some smart decisions and use the free market, but just allow more people to be participants, you know, of that. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's frustrating because if you just, if we had more competent political leaders who could just, you know, look at opportunities like this, it, it doesn't take a genius and it doesn't take, you know, a hundred trillion dollars to fix it, to do something like, the, no, like this, you know, it's, no. it's a very straightforward solution um, with immense benefits. It's just, oh yeah. Well, I mean, it gives you net spendable money mm -hmm. immediately, but like I asked you if you could do a fixed rate rent for me for 30 years and you laugh, go, well, that's stupid. Well, it yeah. is stupid, but guess what? That's what the loan programs are. It, mm -hmm. I'm glad they're there because it creates, it creates just a different feeling. You just went into your home. Well, that's just a different feeling. And the more people that have that, I think the more pride they have. Uh, it's to me, that's a no brainer decision. And yeah. uh, as far as basic income, yeah, I'm probably uh, certainly against that because I don't, I don't think that people would feel any pride in that. I think that mm. takes away the essential thing about I, I kind of did this thing on my own. I, mm -hmm. I want that feeling myself. I, yeah. I do. Yeah. I don't want to be given, I don't want to be given nothing. I just, yeah. I've always been like that. I'd rather live in a Volkswagen, <laughs> you know, uh -huh. I just, okay. As long as I bought the Volkswagen, okay, I'll, I'll do that. But you know, 
there's a lot of people that really like they're homeless. There's all that thing. Okay. I don't want to create a bunch of foreclosures, but I'm trying to say that there's a way to get that exactly. to happen without why spend 15 grand a house when you don't have to. It's yeah. just silly. Yeah. The 15,000, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, that doesn't do nearly, you know, as much as what a, a zero down payment, you know, um, guarantee. I don't even like the yeah. forgiveness of college debt. Yeah. I mean, you know what? Pay, I'll tell you what, pay for it yourself. We'll give you a nothing down house loan. Uh, and when that thing go buy it in Austin in about two years, you'll be able to pay off your college debt exactly, yeah. yourself. Well, but that's true. Uh, that's yeah. a true statement. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you pay? How do you do that without creating animosity for the, for the couple that work two jobs a piece to pay for the kid's education? Sure. Sure. You know, I don't understand how that's a, I, I don't get how that works. Yeah. There's, yeah, it's, 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 it's a, is it free college going forward too? Or do you just have this square box of forgiveness and then yeah. we get to charge again? Mm -hmm. So that's a can of worms, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the sec the other big expense, I think, is um, health insurance and health related you know, expenses where yeah. it's just skyrocketing. I mean, yeah. it, it feels like, you know, these two issues, housing and health, if you could <sighs> come up with creative solutions, you could, you know, I mean, it would make massive changes. I'm. But a lot of it, I think, is leadership. I'm curious what your thoughts on the FHA program for 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 first time home buyers. Um, is that something that you encourage first time home buyers to take advantage of, and how significant would that be? Yeah, I mean, it. I'm a big proponent of owning a house. So mm -hmm. if you can, if that's the easiest entry point for you, um, to me, that's good. I know there's some expenses to an FHA loan. You know, you have the protection for the insurance in case you default and all that. But yeah, I, I think that's, for me, it was the starting point of my wealth creation. It was the fixing of my payment for housing. That was all a big deal. When I, when I first borrowed money, I had a $203 house payment. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a long time ago, yeah. but that was, that felt big. Uh, you know, five years later, it was a joke, mm -hmm. you know, cause my earnings went up and it was sort of like, that's a car payment. That's great. <laughs> and it and because I lived in California, it went up. And so when we sold that house, I netted ten grand, and I was like, I had never seen ten grand attached to my name before. Yeah. I but also got thought, wonder if I could buy three of these instead of one, because if that happened again, that would be pretty cool. And that's what we did. And then we adopted a, a baby girl. Where we were going to adopt a baby girl, and they said you need a bigger house. And so we sold uh, two of the houses that we had, and we bought a five bedroom house free and clear. So I didn't have a house payment. Yeah, that was, I mean, that happened all inside of a very tight time frame. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Um, so, Bruce, I want to um, let you go. I know you have another um, call, but I um, wanted to thank you for coming on the show. I mean, um, a lot of people are, are so curious about what's going on with real estate. There's a lot of, I think, noise, you know, um, and there's always FUD or fear with real estate because, some people think, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's sent, like there's so much, I guess, emotion as well, but I love your data kind of center approach, your, your um, historical kind of view, looking at, you know, bigger trends. Um, I, I just think, you know, you just got to have a really great balanced view. And then I'm, I think over the years, I've seen your just genuine uh, motivation and heart to try to help people out, to really educate them. You know, yeah, with, I enjoyed with, that. Yeah, and I, I just think that's that's fantastic. You know, I mean, um, I really see um, 
Yeah, a lot, a lot of what you do is, is super valuable, and it's helped me a lot. Um, so one story is um, in 2007, I was getting married, and I was like, oh, we need a house because I wanted to fix that, you know, that that rent, that payment in. But we didn't have much money. We we're overstretching ourselves, trying to borrow money from, from family or family, and and housing prices were so high. And then we're right, we're, we put in an offer, but it wasn't accepted, and then... One wow. night, one night, and the housing, this was at the peak kind of in LA um, because right. Inland Empire had started to maybe crack a bit, but um, LA was so high. And then one night I'm like, you know, didn't, didn't Bruce Norris, didn't he say something? You know, because <laughs> I'd heard you speak, you know, a few years ago. I'm like, yeah, something, something just clicked about Bruce Norris. I'm like, oh, I've got to figure out what he's saying, you know, what's going on. So I looked into this end of 2007, and I'm like, oh, that's right. He had called it. He had called the bubble, you know, a few years ago. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute. Let's, let's stop what we're doing here, you know? Let's push off, you know, our, our house purchase, and let's really figure out what's going on. And so I started to look into it. By spring of 2008, we started to go to the uh, auctions that were held um, yeah. by, you know, um, and we, we were entering into these rooms of three, four, 300 or so, let's say, investors, maybe two, 200 investors. But they were just listing off, you know, hundreds of houses. And they were just auctioning them. And I was looking at the Zillow sold price. And it's like $350,000 sold, right, in Palmdale or something, Lancaster, sold for $65,000. Right? Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, this is not, this is strange. Right? <laughs> and so I saw I remember I was like two or three hours of watching these auctions, just like 70% or 75% off of last sold yeah. price. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we're in for a major, like no one, but in the early 2008, it hadn't hit the mainstream, you know, like um, news cycles or anything. And I told my wife, man, we're in for the biggest, you know, correction. And, I, and actually I connected it to the stock market. I'm like, oh my gosh, these banks are going to be in major pain. Um, but yeah, I, I, I look back and I'm like, oh man, Bruce Norris, like you just, you know, just, you helped me in that point. And then in 2009 and 2010, you were the voice in Southern California, especially saying, Hey, this is an opportunity of a lifetime. You were, you had the whole concept of picking up 10 houses, you know, getting mortgages on 10 houses and, you know, as, as just kind of like a no brainer, basically, if you can do it. And, um, yeah, I told my wife about that. And then we started to pick up some houses. I remember one house we picked up, um, it was, it was at an auction and, uh, we had to do some renovations, but two houses down, it was a Norris group house. It was one of the houses you're, you're, oh, we were flipping. Yeah. You were flipping it. But I remember you had said, you always try to do the best, you know, renovations you can. So I, I wanted to, to, to see myself and I went into the house and your head, it was your head foreman. He was in charge, I think, of all your projects. Super nice. And he was showing me the renovations. And I was blown away because like you were, you guys were doing stuff that you didn't have to do. Like yeah. you actually made a pantry that was like bigger and you did, you know, granite countertops and you actually fixed the house as if it was like your own house. And yeah. that just really left a, you know, a big kind of, um, kind of something to remember, you know, it wasn't just about the profit. It was about doing the right thing too. You know, you wanted to, to 
you know, pass on a great house. And um, yeah, I've always loved kind of your ethos to help people to really see the potential in real estate, but to do it in the right way, not to take advantage of people. But there's a way to do it where, you know, both parties can win. So yeah, it's been fantastic. I appreciate that. Well, I'll tell you one thing. When we had those homes for sale, we got offers a lot by hedge funds. They huh. wanted to buy those. And we never said yes to any of their offers. We always supported wow. the local realtor, yeah. the, local, the local buyers to get the house. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Um, <laughs> first I want to, uh, hopefully, I mean, if you're open to it, maybe, um, in a month or two, I'd love to invite you back on to do a live stream where this is a recorded one, but, um, if you're open to it, I, I know my viewers have so many questions and they'll have more questions from this video, but uh, maybe, um, something just to field quite live questions. So we'll, we'll, sure. we'll get a few thousand people to, to join live and then we'll just, you know, maybe, uh, <laughs> Handle some questions. Fun. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. This is the new world we live in. <laughs> Instead of a physical, you know, co a conference center, you could just do it over Zoom and you know, um, have thousands of people join in and be part of the conversation. So yeah. All right. Okay. Well, Dave, great. Thanks for thanks, having Bruce. Me. Okay, we'll talk to you there. Okay. All right. All bye. Right. Bye bye.